0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio.
1: Today's History of Literature podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com. All of you around the world. This is a special episode of the History of Literature podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, by the way, J A C K E Wilson.com, History of Literature.com, Facebook.com slash History of Literature, or email me at Jack Wilson Author at Gmail.com. So, why is this episode special? We have a special guest coming on to discuss a special Halloween book. Professor James Chandler of the University of Chicago is going to be joining us. Professor Chandler is an expert in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So we're going to talk about Mary Shelley. Hey, a lot of you have responded to the Dorothy Parker episode. We asked if she might be the coolest writer of all time. I think that was Mike's view, that she is the coolest. Well, maybe so. But Mary Shelley gives her a run for her money. We'll talk about Mary Shelley in a moment, but first, I want to set something else up. We're also going to be talking about the film, It's a Wonderful Life. I know, I know, that's a strange choice for Halloween, because it's, of course, a Christmas movie, maybe the Christmas movie. It was a hugely important movie for me as a kid. It was on all the time, and I watched it all the time. I watched it year-round, really. It was a copyright issue for a while, and television stations could play it for free, and they did. And I watched it in the, in the summer, whenever, whenever I could. We had a tradition, like a lot of Americans, there was a showing at 10.30 p.m. on Christmas Eve, and I'd stay at my grandmother's house and watch it until long after midnight, as the house grew quiet and the world outside grew still. The world muffled with snow. But on the inside, we had a fireplace crackling, and I watched this saga. Some said it was mawkish and sentimental, but I didn't care. It was a nice change for me. I, who was steeped in David Letterman and Christopher Guest most of the time, it was a nice change for me to be entertained, to have my heartstrings pulled without that patina of irony and knowingness and I was living in a small town, wondering if I should leave or stay or what it would mean if I did either one. This stuff matters to a high school kid. Where are you going to go? Who are you going to marry? What are you going to do? We adults forget sometimes just how crazy all that is for a teenager to contemplate. My world is here, but there's a whole other world over there and George Bailey in Bedford Falls. Well, he had to leave, didn't he? Isn't that the moral of the story right up until the end? There's a kind of horror of staying. I weighed this as I weighed my own choices. Do you believe that you'll end up with all those friends, doing good for them, and and that it will all be worth it in the end? Do you believe that? Do you believe in it? Do you believe it will be enough? George Bailey is the hero of the movie. But Harry Bailey, his brother, the one who left, he seems very happy too. And here's what Harry avoided. Here's what you face if you stay. This is a clip of George as he's descending into the hell of his hometown. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, there are two brothers. They have a father who has a savings loan, the only place in town where the people of Bedford Falls can get a square deal, borrow money for their homes open up a nice little home. Because otherwise, you're in the world of Mr. Potter. Kind of a slumlord. Somebody who mistreats people. Not the Baileys. On the other hand, the Baileys are always chumps. They're always the suckers right up until the end. Okay. So this clip is after George's absent-minded uncle, Uncle Billy, has misplaced all the money. He's actually given it to Potter, in fact. And George has gone to Potter to beg for mercy. Potter offers him a job, a way out. Potter in this scene is like Satan offering to buy George's soul. Of course, George turns him down. And then George goes back to his Uncle Billy, which is the first part we're going to hear in this clip. And then we'll hear a little bit from the scene at home. And trust me, this all circles back to Mary
2: Shelley. I don't want any money. We've got to find that money. I no Good deal. Uncle Billy, oh, I... do you realize what's going to happen if we don't find it? Uh, Listen to me.
0: Do you have any secret hiding place here in the house? Sometimes you would have... Sometimes you
2: would have... I over the whole house, even in rooms of the garage. It's what I love. Thank you. Thank I can't think
0: anymore, George. I can't think anymore. Where's that money, you silly, stupid old fool? Where's that money? You realize what this means? It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. That's what it means. One of us is going to jail. Well, it's not going to be me. Have a happy day. Oh
2: yeah, another big red letter day for the baby.
0: Daddy, the Browns next door have a new car. You should
2: see it. Well, what's the matter with our
0: car? Isn't it good enough for you? Yes, Daddy.
2: Dorothy. Dorothy. Excuse you for what? Edward. Better... All right, Tom. you Now go on upstairs and take a little Zuzu to you. Well, what's the matter with Zuzu? she's got a cold. She's in bed. She's caught it coming home from school. They gave her a flower for a prize and she didn't want to crush it, so she didn't button up her coat. What is it, sore throat or what? Just a cold.
0: The doctor says it's The Doctor. Was the doctor here? Yes, yes I
2: called
0: him right away. Is she running, running a temperature What is Just it? Just the easy one? 99 six should be all right. Of course it's this old house. Of, I don't know why we don't all have no Drafty old farm. We'll be living in a refrigerator. Why do we have to live here in the first place and stay around this measly funny old town?
2: George, what's wrong?
0: Wrong everything. Well, you call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids? Dad, how do you feel, Frank? I don't know. I asked your mother. Where are you going? Why to see Susan. I want to out of place for
2: tomorrow.
1: So, that's the nightmare of staying. The house, the kids, the loving wife. All of it can be crushed by the nightmare of your Hometown turning on you and seeing that your dreams never came true and your life has been wasted. Now, this is rock bottom, and we know what happens after that in the movie. George meets Clarence, the angel, and he sees the world that would exist if he'd never been born, and he decides that he wants to live. And the scene ends, the movie ends with the scene I cry every time, I'm not ashamed to say, as his old friends parade in and give back to George all the money he needs. All his friends, all that giving, the life that he gave to the community, and the love that they give back to him when he needs it most. I was a big fan of this movie. In high school and college, I knew every line, knew every scene, I read books about it. I stumbled across a a Frank Capra festival. It was directed by Frank Capra. Stumbled across a Frank Capra festival in Rome once. I watched a, a dozen other Frank Capra movies. They were sweet and heartfelt. They engaged me in a way that other things didn't. I was reading, what, I suppose, Nabokov and Nicholson Baker and Martin Amis and all these winking, knowing people. I rejected books like Dickens. Too sweet, too saccharine, too manipulative. But there was this undeniable power of It's a Wonderful Life. Martin Amis never made me cry. Probably made others cry in real life. (laughs) He seems to be that sort of a guy, but that's a digression. So how did Capra do it? How did he make a movie that's smart and funny and genuine and yet was so powerful and moving? even to me, 50 years after the movie had first come out. Was it because the movie was set in the past? Was it, or, or filmed in the past? Was it because I accepted that I was traveling into the world where my grandparents were young, a time when there were world wars and great depressions and hard labor and all these things that made irony seem like youthful luxuries, something not serious? Their world, the world of my grandparents, that was a world where you spent 14 hours a day working. You came home. You loaded up your furnace with coal. Twice a year, you rubbed oil into the walls of your house. You broke your back, hauling and scrubbing and loading and dragging. My grandmother had a flour bin in her kitchen, a whole bin that opened up like a drawer. And most of her life, She made bread for hired hands, a cake or a pie every single day for their lunch. She didn't read books like Martin Amos. She wouldn't go to see a movie like Spinal Tap. She watched cooking shows, now and then a travel show, maybe a movie. She could stay up late enough. A real luxury for her was The Love Boat, where the stories were real, people were real, life was real. So, Frank Capra on the one hand, and what I'll call modern humor on the other, rejecting Capra and what he stood for, too sugary, too Hollywood, unrealistic, embarrassing. So, here I am now. This is me a few months ago getting ready for a Halloween episode, starting to put it together. And I have this professor in mind for the show, an expert in the romantic period an expert in Mary Shelley, in fact, among other things, Professor James Chandler. And I read Frankenstein. There are some surprising parts in there, which I'll get to in a minute. I do some background research on Professor Chandler's other interests, and I see that he's written a book called An Archaeology of Sympathy, The Sentimental Mode in Literature and Cinema. The book traces the history of the sentimental, From the 18th century to the current day, and it's fascinating. It's really riveting. How did people understand sentiment and sympathy in the earliest novels? How did this change over time, and why? It's a book for academics, but if you're a writer wondering why Dickens can write a certain way, and whether we can still do that, whether it still works, or if you're a reader trying to figure out how readers engaged with works in the past, and why contemporary fiction and film doesn't work in quite the same way, if you're interested in thinking about individuals in society and how art helps us understand the role of an individual in a community, then this book is for you. Highly recommended. And there's a section in the book on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is very good. I learned a lot from it, and it got me excited about this podcast. But here's the thing about this book. The first 100 or so pages are about Frank Capra. Now, I never made the connection between Frankenstein and Frank Capra, but it's there. It's there. His themes were hers. We'll cover that with Professor Chandler, and we'll see how the Frankenstein movies twist the story and how Frank Capra gets it right in It's a Wonderful Life. Frankenstein, the films were, of course, prominent in the world that Frank Capra was part of early in his career. They were hugely influential, very successful. Frank Capra directed the star, Boris Karloff, the famous star of the James Whale Frankenstein movies. He played the monster, of course. Capra directed him in other movies, and Capra tried to get Karloff for his film Arsenic and Old Lace. Boris Karloff had been the star of the play that the film was based on. There was no doubt that Capra was influenced by Frankenstein. So what are we getting at here? Why Frank Capra? Let's shift gears and talk about Mary Shelley and her work first. Mary Shelley was born into an incredible family in 1797. Her father was William Godwin, the political philosopher who was full of radical ideas like free love and principles of equality. Her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, a philosopher and feminist. Wollstonecraft was a pioneer. She wrote the essay "A Vindication of the Rights of Women, in which she argued that women are not naturally inferior to men, and if they appear to be, it's only because they lack education. She suggests that both men and women should be treated as rational beings and imagines a social order founded on reason. It was in 1792. She basically self-invented herself as a professional female writer, which was not an easy path at the time. Her life was full of affairs and scandals, and, well, looks to me like she was bumping up against everything society was trying to force on her. And it's to people like Mary Wollstonecraft that we owe a lot of our freedoms today. Owe them to people who resisted, people who tried to cast off the restrictions that society insisted upon, people who believed in freedoms and were willing to absorb the negative opinions of others and views regarding their morality or, quote, not knowing your place. She and Godwin hated each other at first, or at least they disagreed on everything the first time they met. But Godwin didn't give up. He fell in love with her after reading one of her books. And she had an affair and a baby, which meant that the two of them lost a lot of friends in the scandal-prone world of 18th century England. But Godwin was an ally, and they were defiant together. And eventually they had a courtship, and then a passionate love affair, until eventually they got married. And then they had a baby together. And a month later, Mary Wollstonecraft tragically died of septicemia, which she had contracted during childbirth. She was 38 years old. The baby survived. They named the baby Mary. That's our Mary, the one we're talking about today, Mary Shelley. And that's the world, the turmoil that she was born into. So there's Mary, young Mary, a girl with a mother, passionate for liberal ideas and freedom, and a champion of women's equality a mother whom she never really knew, and a father whose grief and devastation marked her childhood and who carried on the memories and traditions of the mother. The desire to see Mary the girl lived the sort of life that Mary the mother would have wanted. Mary Shelley received a solid, if somewhat idiosyncratic, education. It helped that she was brilliant and encouraged, though her life was also not perfect. Her stepmother was tough, for example. She grew up encouraged, but that doesn't mean she grew up in comfort. I think she grew up as a fighter. And then, I've been calling her Mary Shelley, but her name, of course, was something else, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. But at 16, she met Percy Shelley, the famous romantic poet, not quite famous yet, though, He was an acolyte of William Godwin, loved his ideas, and he was hanging around, and eventually the two fell in love. Percy Shelley, born into an aristocratic family, but he took his economic ideas, radical ideas from William Godwin, much to his family's chagrin. And Percy Shelley was ending a marriage of his own. He was young, in his early 20s and rebelling against his landowning family, and he and Mary ran off to France and eloped in 1814. She was 17, he was 21. So that's our couple, the Shelleys. She called herself Mrs. Mary Shelley now, besotted with ideas about how to change society, besotted with one another, breaking free from their parents and society. And this is where things truly get astonishing from the perspective of, the history of literature in 1816 they go to geneva where they're planning to spend the summer with lord byron mercy and mary have brought their friend claire who happens to be pregnant with byron's child from a previous affair but that's all good everyone here believes in free love byron turns up with his doctor a guy named john polidori remember that name for a moment The five of them rent a house, and all it does is rain that summer. So they spend most of their time sitting around a log fire, talking about life and love and society and literature. Polidori seems to have fallen in love with Mary, made a pass at her at one point, which she rejected, and Claire was still in love with Byron. Shelley was, I think, still disentangling himself from his marriage, from his previous marriage of course, young and in love with Mary. It's free love, people. This is the scene we have. So there in the rain, sitting by the fire, they amuse themselves by telling German ghost stories. And Byron suggested that they each write their own ghost story. And who's Mary Shelley? She's 17 years old. She hasn't yet been a writer, really. She has no reputation or anything for writing. She doesn't have a story to tell. It becomes a source of anxiety for her. Every morning, she wrote later, the others would ask her, where's the story? Where's the story? And she didn't have one. Here's her quote. Have you thought of a story I was asked each morning? And each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. A mortifying negative. You can see what's at work here. Try being George Harrison while John Lennon and Paul McCartney are writing those wondrous hits, as George Harrison put it later. What are you? What are you going to do? Are you going to step up and write songs too? Are you creative? Or are you just going to tag along with us for a while? Get famous for being in our proximity. And George Harrison said, no, I will also write songs, even if I pale in comparison for a while. I won't just live in the shadows. I think it's fair to assume that young Mary had some ideas like this, too. Everyone around me is writing poetry, creating something. It was clear that Byron and Shelley were marked for greatness. Am I going to be someone who comments, chips in, hangs around? Am I just a muse here, support staff, or do I have something in me, too? Am I inventing this, putting this in Mary's head? Remember her phrase, I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. I don't think the negative would be mortifying if she didn't have some thoughts like that. So then, after a few days, she gets a thought. Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated, she noted. Galvanism had given token of such things. Galvanism, animation by electrical current. And that night, between two and three in the morning, and we're, it's precise because some poor astronomer went to Geneva and checked the stars and the moon to place this exactly in time. He's a big fan of Frankenstein. Anyway, we know it's after midnight. We know that from her letters. We'll accept from our diligent friend, the astronomer, that it was between two and three. And at that moment, Mary Shelley goes through what she later calls being possessed by the grim terrors of a waking dream. Quote, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out. And then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life, and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. It's an astonishing image, one of the most powerful in all of literature. It is the beauty of Mary Shelley's genius that she immediately apprehended this the raw power of it. She did not approach this subject, this story, rationally. She didn't think, hmm, life, if you were a giver of life, what would the consequences be? What philosophical ideas would that implicate? What would be your comeuppance? What would it mean for individuals and society? I don't mean she didn't think through all of that, because it's all in the book. Clearly, she did have things to say about all those things. But what impresses me is that she got right away what is, for me, the most arresting part of the book. The fact that if you actually created life, you would probably be scared to death. Here's the scene. There are a couple of real surprises in Frankenstein for anyone who only knows the the story from the films. People who only know the version. Just look at the Saturday Night Live version of Frankenstein the big green monster with bolts on his neck, grunting away. And a creator, if you watch the films, the creator was kind of like a mad egomaniac, thrilled with his own power. That's the version we get now. We'll talk about that with Professor Chandler, how we got to that version. But in the original book, Dr. Frankenstein is completely repulsed by his own creature. Here's the scene as Mary Shelley writes it. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I may infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful,
0: beautiful, great God—
1: His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing. His teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set. His shriveled complexion and straight black lips and the contortions that ever and anon convulsed and deformed his unhuman features. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years with the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation, but now that I had finished— The beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Horror, disgust, and the monster, feeling rejected and abandoned by his creator, ends up as a killer. This is the absolute terror of the book, the one that goes deep into our core. We all know what this is like on a small scale, don't we? To do something evil or bad and have it blow out of proportion? Don't we know this? Something beyond our control? I'm trying to recall something that I did, but it's really only a memory of something someone else did, something my childhood friend did. He was hanging out by some railroad tracks, burning ladybugs, a really vicious thing to do, pointless, cruel and awful. But that's the kind of thing boys do. Stomp ants for fun. One hopes they don't graduate to larger animals, but I've seen kids do that too, throw rocks at birds. I don't know what it is in human nature that makes them do that. Anyway, this friend has a little flame going with this nest of bugs, and his younger brother came by and threw some dry grass on this little fire. And the next thing you know, the two of them are running away from 20-foot flames that are wiping out the trees all along the railroad tracks. and The flames are headed for a cornfield. And good God, a brand new subdivision that's been carved out of the corn. A dozen or so homes that have just been built. Luckily, the field was barren, so there were no crops ruined. And the fire didn't quite reach the subdivision, but it got so close that it singed. The electrical boxes outside some of the homes before the fire department could put it out. No one was hurt, thank God. But that moment of running, which my friend described for me, running in terror, was very vivid to me, even though I wasn't there. That's the moment here, right? The Dr. Frankenstein moment when the monster opens his eye. What have I done? What have I done? This isn't beautiful. This isn't fun. It's horrible. It's hideous. It's out of my control. I did this, and I don't know how to undo it. There's a story that when Mary Shelley... Actually, actually here I should confess. I thought the story was that when Byron heard Frankenstein, he ran from the room screaming in horror but now I'm not sure that happened. I couldn't find the, the support for that. I think I may have gotten that story confused with another incident in which By- Byron read aloud a poem of Coleridge's and Percy Shelley ran from the room screaming in horror. That group was good at scaring one another. There was a lot of running from rooms, a screaming in horror going on at this place. Kind of getting goosebumps just thinking about that rainy cottage with all those... Young geniuses scaring the bejesus out of each other. (laughs) Let's get back to Frankenstein. Later in the book, the monster confronts his creator. And this is another big surprise. How eloquent the monster is. The monster makes the case to Dr. Frankenstein that the doctor should give him a bride. And he says, quote, you must create a female for me. With whom I can live in the interchange of those sympathies necessary for my being. This you alone can do, and I demand it of you as a right which you must not refuse. End quote. The doctor does refuse. Why compound your mistake? If you burn one field, why would you go burn down another to make it better? But the monster is very rational and persuasive. What I ask of you is reasonable and moderate, he says. I demand a creature of another sex, but as hideous as myself. The gratification is small, but it is all that I can receive, and it shall content me. It is true, we shall be monsters cut off from all the world, but on that account we shall be more attached to one another. Our lives will not be happy, but they will be harmless and free from the misery I now feel. Oh! My creator, make me happy. Let me feel gratitude towards you for one benefit. Let me see that I excite the sympathy of some existing thing. Do not deny me my request. It's an extraordinary passage, deep and rich, and with humanity swinging in the balance. What it means to be human. What it means to be part of society. It's the crux of the book. Dr. Frankenstein's choice. But I've said enough. We need to get to our expert, the man who wrote a book called An Archaeology of Sympathy, to really unpack this. So let's get there. But first, I told you to remember the name John Polidori. He was part of this group, too, of Byron, Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley. Three geniuses, turns out. (laughs) Imagine that. Turns out there's three geniuses here. He's like Ringo. So what does John Polidori do? He writes his ghost story. And it's pretty good, too, as it turns out. Good enough to publish after they leave Switzerland. And in fact, it's good enough to start its own genre. A lot of people took this idea and ran with it. What was that little story written by Byron's doctor? It was called The Vampire V-A-M-P-Y-R-E, and it inspired Dracula and all the rest. Frankenstein and Dracula, both coming out of a single rented cottage in Switzerland. A summer of rain and creative energies crackling. It's like a literary miracle. Happy Halloween, everyone. Okay, keep Frank Capra in mind, we're going to draw a line here from Frankenstein to Frank Capra, and it's a Wonderful Life, and the line is going to be about one of our favorite literary subjects, sympathy. And Professor James Chandler of the University of Chicago is going to help us draw it.
0: Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat Cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
1: Mary Shelley is criticized sometimes, or the the novel is criticized for not really knowing what side to come down on, or for not for being uh, confused. But I'm I'm wondering if you see it that way, or if you see it as a, a richness or a complexity.
3: I I see it as a as a kind of profound ambivalence, um, mm-hmm. which is why I don't want to overstress the genetic story. You know, the story that says, "Oh, she was uh, radical when she wrote the." core of it and conservative when she wrote the... I don't want to quite do it that way. The way I prefer to think of it is to think of the whole novel as really seesawing Mm -hmm. on a particular uh, question, which I think is a deeply profound question, and I think it has remarkable implications for European and American culture and, and much else in the decades and centuries that follow. And that question is simply, will no one sympathize with the creature because he's a monster, or is he a monster because no one will sympathize with him. Mm. And I take this question up a little bit in those pages in my book that are about Frankenstein and I say that this this is a a structuring problem of a great deal of uh, literature that comes after Mary Shelley. I think it's all over somebody like Dickens mm. where many of the creatures that seem sorry, the characters who seem monstrous in Dickens takes somebody like Abel uh, Magwitch um, mm-hmm. in Great Expectations that convict who comes out of the steamy marshy lands of the Thames estuary where where Pip is raised in uh, shackles and forces Pip to, you know, get a file to undo them. I mean he's a he's a, a truly a monstrous creature, but by the end of the book we are given a story uh, of Abel Magwitch, in which Abel Magwitch really does seem like the Abel character and not the Cain character of the story, and has his own account of victimization. And uh, many of the stories of of monsters, uh, including in cinema, this Charlize Theron film called Monster, right? Uh, I think does similar things. I, I think I say in just a footnote in my book that. Uh, A contemporary, very popular narrative, both in its novelistic and its uh, cinematic incarnations, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, seems to me to reject that, let's call it, liberal uh, narrative in which the apparent monster is actually a victim to be sympathized with and to be explained and and, uh, someone whose errors are to be thought of as socially constituted and therefore socially fixed right? That kind of story, Mm which is kind of the the Dickens story. But in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Martin Vanger, is that his name, the predator? Uh, It turns out that he was a victim himself of his father's uh, predatory uh, incest, but uh, certainly to, what's her name, Salander? Mm -hmm. She rejects that. One sense is that the Novel rejects it, too. You know, she's just going to shoot him anyway. Right. He may have been a victim in his turn, but that doesn't seem to make any difference there. So the, the many other examples that might have taken, I've just picked, picked a couple of salient ones. Dickens is an obvious place to look where you get a kind of, let's call it um, liberal social explanation, or a kind of monstrosity which creates victims, but which is often the result of victimization. And so the problem seems more structural than it does personal. And I think that's one way to go with with Frankenstein. And then Mm -hmm. the other way to go with it is just, no, I mean, the monster is a monster. And in this case, you know, the skin patched together, the evidence of murderousness that is recurrent in his character is is the right way to think of this. That's, I would call that, I'm calling this the conservative view, Mm -hmm. Um, that we're kind of an original sin view, you know, that we're not. Can't be remedied by social programs or by enlightenment. there's just uh, evil there, and um the evil is in victor, the evil is in his creature, and even in let's say the villagers
1: right. So, when you say that it's a, a liberal and a conservative view, it's, it's easy to see the analogy, for example, how we think of treatment of prisoners uh, exactly. today. And so we, we would say that, um, we would look to the root causes and say that this person maybe didn't have the, the interchange of sympathies that were necessary for proper growth and, and that exactly. it would be important to treat them humanely. And then on the other hand, you know, even that dynamic, might collapse if we, if we take a look at an example like Hitler. You know, we don't want to allow ourselves to treat an example like that yeah with that kind of framework and it seems like we don't want,
3: we don't want to hear about Hitler's hit troubled childhood.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. say, no, you know, we're we're off the hook on this one. We're we're <laughs> going to treat him as he deserves to be treated because he actually is a monster and was was Shelley was she kind of torn between that kind of view of social reform and a kind of cold reality of of how she saw human beings?
3: Well, I think she couldn't help but be These debates were, you may remember from your studies in Romantic Poetry uh, back at Chicago, um, (laughs) that these debates were actually internal to the world that they lived in. Uh, Shelley and Byron argued these points out day and night. Uh, Shelley, Percy Shelley, that is, her husband, he was the... Uh, idealist revolutionary. Um, they both were Prometheans in a certain way. It's, there's evidence that Mary Shelley was tarring both of them with the same brush. Byron wrote a poem called Prometheus in 1818. Shelley was probably responding to it with his famous play in 1819, Prometheus Unbound. Uh, and Shelley's Mary Shelley's novel, The Modern Prometheus, is right in the middle of all this. But for all their common Prometheanism, Shelley and Byron had very different views about mm, what you might call uh, the limits of human perfectibility. Mm. And Shelley dramatized these in a wonderful poem that became very important to Robert Browning, I think, called Julian and Matelo, which was a poem about two friends in Venice who have an argument about human perfectibility. So Julian is the Shelley character. It's Shelley's poem. And He's in it as Julian, and Mattelow is the Byron character. It's all very clear. And to settle their disagreement, they go to a, um, a madhouse where they see this mad poet ranting, uh, kind of a tasso figure. Hmm. And then the, the, the mad poet's rant constitutes almost all of the rest of the poem. And then instead of resolving the argument, there's just this short eight-line conclusion, which is really not a conclusion, in which the narrator says that um, you know exactly how this argument was settled is something that the cold, wor- the cold world will never know. But these kinds of debates, the sort that you can see internal to the novel, were there in the Byron Shelley circle in lots of different uh, manifestations. So it's uh, Mary Shelley's father, William Godwin, was somebody who believed in social perfectibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not widely known, but um, the famous Malthus, who wrote his essay on population in 1798, in which he suggested that human population, in a sense human happiness, was a zero-sum game. You know, it isn't an expanding pie. Someone gains, someone loses. And populations can't be infinitely expanded and still find support. Malthus wrote that book partly in response to Godwin. So, it's not just that we see it in the generation of Mary Shelley, it's also in the generation before. Uh, her father, this very important philosopher of the time, William Godwin, and then the famous Malthus, were having this battle that she was, in some sense, the heir to. Not all these disputes have the same form, but they there's a certain say, sense in which they they have a similar tension or a similar structure.
1: And was this just a an evolution of, of ideas? Or was it also connected to social conditions? Or were we seeing, you know, people being treated more harshly? Or
3: it, it was coming to the fore, I, I don't think people were, weren't being treated more harshly, quote, unquote, although you have the beginnings of industrialization, you have the beginning of of serious exploitation of a labor class. That's partly what the Peterloo demonstration was about in 1819 and, and which was brutally put down it was one of the first modern labor demonstrations and confrontate violent confrontations with state state violence 13 men women and children demonstrating uh, in behalf of their in effect workers rights were, were were slaughtered by the Manchester police and the and the 15th hussars who had fought at Peterloo at, at Waterloo that kind of encounter which is very contemporaneous with with Frankenstein itself and which very much animated Mary's husband, Percy Shelley. He wrote a lot about Peterloo that following year. Uh, Those kinds of things are definitely coming to the fore uh, and there is some worker exploitation, but I would say that in the case of let's say the French revolution, it isn't that the exploitation of the peasantry uh, just started in the 1780s. It's rather that it had come to light, right? And it had come to light, for many, many complicated reasons, uh, not least the American Revolution. The American Revolution was an important uh, example to the French, and then the French Revolution became really a point of orientation for this whole period, and not least for Byron and uh, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley. Right. So, so that so that the, this, this revolutionary fervor and the spirit of reform, which will finally issue in some kind of difference making in 1832 with the passage of the reform bill these things were very much on people's minds and and the question of what kinds of ills could be settled through social reform and what kinds couldn't very much on the minds of writers in this period and putting it very grossly that's one of the sorts of issues that you're seeing played out in the ambivalences of 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 frankenstein
1: Right, so I was already looking ahead to, you know, the the era of Dickens and debtors' prisons and and that kind of thing and the workhouses. But actually, I, I should have been looking a little bit back to the Revolution and the changes that were were going on and and the uncertainty about where that was going to lead and where it should lead.
3: Yeah, and remember, Dickens himself more or less makes that connection in the importance he gives to the Bastille in Tale of Two Cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a novel that comes pretty late, right, 1859, Dickens has written a whole bunch of important novels by then, right, including one that begins in a prison, uh, Little Dorrit. He, he sort of makes the connection back to the French Revolution in his wonderful uh, novel of 1859, Tale of Two Cities. Can we talk a little bit about the about the film versions? Because there's such sure. an interesting... There's such an interesting um, uh, take on this question.
1: The two that I think of most are James Whale's Frankenstein of 1931. Yeah. Is that the one you want yeah. to start with?
3: Yeah, or the bri- and The Bride of Frankenstein. They're both brilliant. Okay. But I always I like to read them all through Gene Wilder's brilliant, uh, right. Mel Brooks' brilliant young Frankenstein, because I think it understands things so well. Mm-hmm. But on the way to that, let me just say something very quickly uh, to set this up, because you raised the point about how the eloquent creature of Mary Shelley's novel becomes this grunting, <laughs> this grunting <laughs> mute, really. Right. Did that He's, start with Peter? With uh, Peter Boyle? Uh, uh, no, no. Oh, it's, okay. It's really no. Come on, it's really with Boris Karloff. The, <laughs> oh, the, right, of course. <laughs> the best Boris Karloff can do is friend. Right. <laughs> That's about it no it 's actually very interesting it It starts in eighteen twenty three so only five years after the novel is published and it gives you some idea of its contemporary popularity. Walter Scott, for example, thought it was a terrific novel. This is the age of melodrama mm-hmm. this, is, this is the the first quarter century of modern melodrama which which is imported to England in eighteen hundred uh a play by Thomas Holcroft. Uh, part of this Godwin circle actually was holcroft so these people all knew each other so Five years after the novel was published, a man called Richard Peake adapts it for the stage in a melodrama called Presumption. Mm. And for complicated reasons, which we can't go into, which partly have to do with getting around licensing laws and what is legitimate theater and what kind of play can be produced and what kind of theater and how much talking can there be, melodrama used muteness accompanied by gesture. On the one hand, and music, as the name suggests, on the other, to get around laws governing how much speech there could be in a non-legitimate theater, because there were only two legitimate theaters in Britain at the time, the Drury Lane and Covent Garden. Right. So, if you're doing a play in one of these other places, you've got to get around <laughs> these laws. So, melodrama. This is this is a crude explanation of the rise of melodrama, <sighs> but it's not completely wrong. Right. So. So, the the figure of the mute, as Peter Brooks points out in a wonderful book on melodrama, the figure of the mute becomes very important in the history of, in the development of melodrama. And so, Richard Peake renders the creature a mute mm. in 1823. That's the beginning of it. Right. And since this doesn't give Victor Frankenstein someone to talk to, and since he can't resort to the frame within the frame within the frame uh, structure that, Mary Shelley's gothic novel employs, so he kind of drops Walton out of it, which is another feature that contributes to the way the movies are made, because Walton isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, he has to invent a servant. Oh, so That's we get Igor. The, who becomes Igor, remember, in, <laughs> right. in Mel Brooks. Uh, he, keeps, he says, if you're going to be Frankenstein, then I'm going to be Igor. <laughs> so a lot of the structure of the of the 1930s movies comes out of this theater tradition which develops out of melodrama right after Frankenstein is produced. Well, it's okay.
1: fascinating the the impact that that has on us because it turns the monster into something uh, it's more like sort of an overgrown baby or, it you know, it's almost... Absolutely. Um, and, it's,
3: and especially with Peter Boyle, right? Yeah. He looks kind of like a baby. <laughs> right. He's got that big round head. <laughs> um, so... Here's the thing that happens in, in the, the film versions, which is, to me, just absolutely fascinating. Uh, partly for the way that it totally misses the point of, Mary, of the Mary Shelley puzzle, right? we You talking okay. about this puzzle. Is the, will no one sympathize with the creature because he's a monster, or is he a monster because no one will sympathize with him? That all depends on, let's call it, an, a non-material account of of monstrosity right it 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 may be or, or at least it it puts into question whether monstrosity is a matter of just the matter that you're made of right it 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 could just be it, it, the, the matter of the social process that you experience your your upbringing your society that's what we've been talking about okay notice that in the james whale films the wonderful films of the 30s the question of the of the creature's monstrosity is pre-settled by the fact that there is a switch with a criminal brain. Right. Very important in those films. That is not in Mary Shelley's novel. If that were Mary Shelley's novel, then there wouldn't be an issue about sympathy and this whole question of whether evil is social or inherent. Why did Whale do that? Um, that's a good question. He He may have done it because... The this is a stretch, but it it may have been inherent in some of the theatrical traditions. So I don't want to overplay this. Right. But 1931 Hollywood, the Hayes office hasn't come into effect yet. That's 32 or 33, you know, where the moral code is Mm -hmm. self-imposed on Hollywood, which has mainly to do with, you know, kissing scenes and how you have to have if a couple's on a bed, they have to have one foot on a floor. All these rules. We all know this. But it was definitely the case that morally problematic material raised eyebrows in Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood had been under fire all through the 1920s. There were people in Congress trying to break the, the monopoly of the studios. There was a big movement in Congress in 1925 to do that. So they knew they were under fire, and they had to be careful about this. And something is morally ambiguous Right as as the as Mary Shelley's novel was, you know, might have been a, a major problem uh, if if it was really comprehended down to the core, and so the brain switching plot kind of settles that. Right, and it, it settles it with by a, a, a material solution. For me, this relates to the fact that the history of the sentimental, as I was describing in the beginning, is actually a response to earlier materialisms of the 17th century when people were trying to reduce mind to matter or or uh, soul to, to body. And the sentimental tradition emerged, in a way, as an escape hatch from that in this group of very important and influential thinkers called latitudinarians. Um, so that, in a way, the 20th century version of Frankenstein is the revenge of the material, right? It's the criminal brain that decides... Uh, the question of whether the creature is a monster. right? And note what this does to the plot. Now, if the creature is defined by the fact that he has a criminal brain, if the creature's monstrosity is defined that way, then how Frankenstein responds to the creature's opening of his eyes is going to have a different inflection. And so we have the famous sequence, you know, parodied on... The radio all the time. You hear it all the time on DJs using, it's alive, it's alive, right? Right. Right. In in the film, um, his name isn't Victor in the film. I forget. He's changed his name. But the the Frankenstein character in the film, Dr. Frankenstein, is excited by the uh, birth of the creature. Right. In the film. It isn't the, oh, the dull yellow eye opens and he runs away. Right. F- Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, Doctor Frankenstein, does not run away in the James Whale film.
1: Right, he knew and what he was going to get.
3: He knew what he was going to get. He was, you know, he, he was that—that that wasn't the problem. That his lack of sympathy isn't part of the story in a way, right? Right, right. Or not the same kind of part. And Gene Wilder, who, because Mel Brooks is just so smart about getting all this, I don't know if you remember this, but in the, in the young Frankenstein, when Peter Boyle opens his eyes, Gene Wilder starts playing coochie coochie coo. <laughs> <laughs> this cheeks it's the exact opposite of you know running away right um and indeed at the end of that film gene wilder loves the creature so much that he's willing literally to change places with him he gives him his he gives him his brain right and that yields that famous line when gene wilder and terry Garr are in bed at the end and terry Garr says well i don't understand um dr frankenstein if the creature got your brain. What part of the creature did you get? And he says, (laughs) so the switching, you know, far from being somebody who runs away from his creature, the Gene Wilder character is one who loves the creature when he's, when he comes to life and who actually makes a sympathetic sacrifice for him at the end of the film for which indeed he also gains certain advantages.
1: And his his love for the for the creature is it's kind of separated from what we've been talking about in terms of sympathy. It's more like an act of ego, yes, right that he's yes. excited that he was able to do it and that he doesn't yes. care that he's created a monster quite uh quite consciously intentionally almost created a monster, but he's he's so thrilled that he was able to pull it off.
3: yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's not that there isn't a sort of narcissistic patina to the Gene Wilder character, right? There's a kind of a, a pastiche of narcissism in the Gene Wilder character. He's boasting all the time, right. flipping his hair around. But there is also this uh, sense that it isn't about a failure of sympathy mm-hmm. because um, Gene Wilder loves the creature. Uh, and and that, that uh, plot twist is made possible by the fact that the creature's identity is settled by the brain switching device. I don't know if you remember, but Marty Feldman, the Igor character goes into the, uh, when he goes into the lab, <laughs> he, he he takes the one beaker and it says normal brain. And then he accidentally drops it. <laughs> That's right. And then there's another one that very clearly says abnormal brain. <laughs> and, and when he comes to bring the, the brain to, to, to Gene Wilder, uh, Gene Wilder says, um, uh, so, um, and then he makes the creature and then he realizes something's gone wrong. He says, Can you tell me anything about that brain that you brought me? He says, Well Bertie Feldman says, Yeah, I mean it was called uh Abby Normal. <laughs> so so that 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 basis of the material basis of the creature's monstrosity in the films is, you know, sent up hilariously by Gene Wilder, but in a way that makes it very clear that it isn't about this question of, well, is it really that he lacks sympathy. That's the problem. No, it's somewhere else. If there's any problem at all.
1: Right. Okay. I have a special bonus question for you. Uh, yeah. Uh Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. You are walking across a bridge on a snowy evening when you encounter an angel. He has some news for you. He says that Frank Capra, the director of It's a Wonderful Life and many other films, has been hard at work in heaven. He was allowed to make any film he wants, and he has decided to work on an adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Hmm. So my question is in two parts. First Hmm. question, are you surprised that he chose to do this?
3: Okay. Ask me the other question. I'll answer them together.
1: (laughs) Okay. The second one is, what approach do you think he is taking?
3: Well, um, the Snowy Bridge, of course, recalls uh, It's a Wonderful Life, right? which I can't now not see. I must see as a film so self-consciously in the sentimental tradition that I'm describing. Right Back to Dickens, especially The Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol has roots, as I've tried to show, that go right back to the moment of Lawrence Stern in... The whole thing with with, um, Scrooge, it's all about sympathy, uh, including sympathy with himself. It's, I suppose, obvious in ways that I don't have to belabor that It's a Wonderful Life is a remaking of A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. What might this have to do with Frankenstein? Well, I might suggest to you that, so to answer your first question, I wouldn't be surprised.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Except... To say now, I'm going to be really perverse to say that there's a certain sense in which Frank Capra already made that film with *It's a Wonderful Life*, mm. because there is a moment uh, in the heart of the uh, movie—it's almost dead center when we're looking at the first half. This isn't now. This is bef- this is when George is on his way to the snowy bridge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, before, uh, yeah. before he before he throws himself in the water before yep. he meets Clarence the before Clarence the angel saves him by getting George to save him, right. and we see what the world looks like without George in it, which is in a sense a Frankenstein world, right? It's a world of monstrousness and everything is uh, everybody who had goodwill is now monstrous. But on his way in that tough sequence of events of uh, Christmas Eve, nineteen forty-five. That's the precise date of the action uh when george's brother is coming home and uncle billy loses the five thousand dollars or eight thousand dollars and potter Potter, the scrooge character uh tells him he's going to call the police on george goes to him asking for in effect sympathy potter says yeah i'll give you some sympathy and he calls the cops get over here right away but but in the middle of this sequence George is um, shows up back at the house.
1: Oh, and this this is a devastating scene. I think. I mean, it's, it, it's terrible. It's it's, it's
3: it's 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 horrific, really. People who
1: criticize Capra as being sentimental, yeah. they forget how dark this scene is.
3: It's a very dark scene. So you may remember the scene. Uh, he's he comes in that familiar piece of uh, uh, the, the ball on, on the bottom of the staircase. Yeah comes off and he nearly throws it through the, through the, the picture window in front of the house. Yeah. He'll, he'll later when he's grateful for his life again, kiss that. Yeah. Off. Right. But in the middle of this, he goes up to see Zuzu who's got to be so famous that there was actually a rock band called Zuzu's pedals. <laughs> uh, he, he get, you know, the, we, we see the pedals. He learns that she's sick, that she was, you know, not sent home from school in time. He calls up the, teacher. He gives the teacher a piece of his mind. He's going to later run into the teacher's wife, uh, sorry, husband at the bar. He's going to punch him. That's how he gets the cut. Yeah. But in the middle of all this he comes back downstairs and there's this kind of chaotic domestic scene going on where right. the, one kid is playing. Uh, Practicing the piano. Yeah, playing Yeah, yeah Hark the Herald Angels <laughs> Sing over and over again on the piano. Uh, the teacher calls up. He screams at the teacher and he's really losing it. And he turns monstrous and here he is. He's alienated from his entire family. Donna Reed has one kid in her arms. The other two are at her side. And she says, George, you just, you just get out of here. You're, you know, yeah. and he, and he's on, he's, he's, he's lit from below. Uh, he, he has that look that you have that kids can do when they put a flashlight under their chin and make themselves look scary. Yeah. And, and what's going on here is that, um, so he's become a monster and I, I think um, Capra f- flags this because he says uh, one of the kids is part part of the annoying family scene. In addition to "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" and the sick child upstairs, is that this other kid is practicing spelling <laughs> for the for the, uh, the Christmas pageant or something? And, he's, and he and he says, "How do you how do you spell frankincense?" And and they get as far as F R A N K, and then I think it's I-N, right? It's not just I-N, and then it stops. Franken. Yeah, so it looks like it's spelling out Frankenstein in the middle of this scene of George's monstrosity. But clearly this is a, (laughs) a, 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 a kind of monstrosity that is absolutely socially determined, and so much so that the premise of the rest of the movie is to suggest... Well, not only that George has been turned monstrous by circumstances here, but that social circumstances would become much more monstrous without George to guide them right in in a future uh, world or an alternative world in which he was never born so I, yeah, that's a I've dodged your question but I, I I do think that in a certain sense, Capra had already engaged with this whole set of questions that I'm talking about, the sentimental, the monstrous, and the legacy that goes through Dickens in that film.
2: Oh,
1: it's just fascinating. I mean, it, it really is. It's such a great film, and it it's so interesting to tie it back into these themes of, you know, when someone subtracts themselves out of a community. Yeah. It's almost like there's this this balance or this ecosystem of, of sympathy that gets disrupted. It it seems like Frank Capra's view. Here's something I had in mind. Okay. I was picturing that maybe uh, Dr. Frankenstein would be a wealthy man whose Promethean dream is to create a cheap labor force. Mm. But the monster he creates, finds some camaraderie with his fellow laborers who initially reject him, but eventually start to recognize him as one of their own. And we head into to Capra land that way. Write it up. <laughs> okay. Well, I think I'm I'm more impressed by the uh, newfound knowledge I have that next time I watch It's a Wonderful Life, I'm going to have to especially watch for that Frankincense uh, yeah. scene and and see how how many other uh, nods to Frankenstein we can detect in that scene.
3: But certainly to monstrosity. I mean, he's he he he's certainly. I mean, I the, the strongest. Uh, point to make about that scene is that George—that's the moment where George has become monstrous, yeah, through circumstance, yeah—and
1: just his appearance. I mean, he's—he he's, yeah. looks almost sweaty
3: and, and yeah, um, and, his, tie, his tie is undone, yeah, yeah. his hair, and yeah. Ah, yeah. Uh, well, all of this is
1: great. I really enjoyed talking to you, Professor James Chandler. Thank you for joining us today on the
2: History
3: of Literature podcast. This was really fun. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to do it. Mm-hmm.
1: we go. Wonderful. Wasn't that fun? I'll never watch that movie the same way again. And what does it say at the end? The note that George gets from Clarence. It says, Remember, George, no man is a failure who has friends. Poor Frankenstein's monster. (laughs) No friends. What makes a monster a monster? Not having someone to care for, not being cared for by others. The interchange of sympathies. That's what makes us human. So remember that as you head out for your trick-or-treating this year. Is that little zombie truly someone to be scared of? Or disgusted by? Or is it someone who needs a little love? I have a little goblin in my household with creepy glowing eyes and a scary black shroud this year. I'm planning to give him a little love, of course. He's much more cute than hideous. There may be times when we shun monsters because they're monsters, but not in this particular instance. This little monster deserves all our love, which he will take in the form of a hug, because he's not too big for that. Although, frankly, he prefers a pillowcase full of candy. Love takes many forms. Speaking of many forms and love, why not show a little love for us and yourself, by heading over to Audible for your free audiobook. Compliments of Audible and the History of Literature podcast. That's audibletrial.com/hol. Do they have Frankenstein?
0: Of course they do. I recommend
1: the version by Derek Jacobi. They also have a book by Mel Brooks and Judd Apatow about the making of Young Frankenstein.
2: It's alive! It's alive! alive.
1: Oh, Gene. You were so good and so underrated. R.I.P., sweet prince. That's what we have for today. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes and give us a good review, or like us on Facebook, or tell your friends to check us out. We truly appreciate it. We'll be back soon with author Shauna Yang Ryan with some books that she loves and we have another good one in the works virginia wolf and her enemies and guess what bob dylan won the nobel prize for literature and our friend mike palindrome is furious about it i think we need to find out why oh boy it's going to be a good few weeks here on the history of literature podcast i'm jack wilson thanks for listening and we'll see you next time